Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 60. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Kim. This week, we're also joined by the one and only Orhan Ayuche. Orhan, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've been here before, but this one is really special because I have Ken and Donna on the other side of the line, and I'm really happy to be here and share this session with everyone. Yeah, this is a serious, like, old-school Arconnector reunion, I feel like. <laughs> Who's been around the longest? <laughs> you. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but <laughs> I, think, I think you can... Donna and I, I think we came in the same time. I think so. And, Pretty um, much, yeah. Amelia, I'm the newbie. Yeah. She, she's, yeah. A, she, she, she's a newbie, but she's a force. Yes. I'll take that, Orhan. Thank you. <laughs> sure, anytime. <laughs> and she can hold the liquor. So. Yes, that is. Thank you, Ken. I couldn't say that myself, but I'm glad I got someone to back me up. So you, you guys you guys need to know this. I also traveled with this tour to China. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. This is in the in my newbies new days. That was <laughs> a couple yeah, that years was ago. Pretty soon after you started uh, working with us. Yeah. So when was that? 2012 or no? 2014. 14. Yeah. 2000, mm-hmm. December 2014. So a year and a half ago. February. <laughs> oh, it was February 2014. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure, but um, that sounds about right. Yeah, that was memorable. Yeah, uh, that was for that was a true. project that you're kind of still working on, right? Yes, it's uh, Los Angeles Biennale. It's totally fictional, which you are part of it. Um, Not to be confused with the LA Biennale that Garcetti just announced, which is a totally different thing that has nothing to do with what we were involved no, in, ours, but happens to share the Biennale name. Ours is parasitical. and um, I think our lawyers told us not to talk about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> screw your lawyers. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, like that. I like that description of it as being a, like a parasite. Yes, it is. And it, uh, we wouldn't have it any other way. It has to have some kind of uh, anti uh, side to it, which gives us a lot of authority to say things that other people wouldn't. And um, like taking a bunch of soft porn uh, books to China, uh, as you remember. <laughs> and, uh, that was uh, pulled from Eric Chavkin's Eric Chavkin's uh, unofficial he, unofficial he, collection. Eric Chavkin is uh, uh, I don't know if Donna and Ken probably know him too. He occasionally writes things for Arcanic. Of course, and he's kind of like a bookie. I he's kind of a grew up with him in Cyark, you know, uh, from the seventies on. He started Form Zero, right? He, the, uh, he took over. Form oh, he Zero. took over Form yes. Zero, the famous. L.A. architecture bookstore that bookstore. no longer exists. Yeah. And yeah. He, he started to market film to film community, and that was kind of a start to deteriorate after that. But Eric is a very interesting friend of mine, great writer. So what else are you working on right now, Orhan? I'm working with Tony Carfella, who is the deputy director of MAC, Schindler House, MAC Center. And we are working on the translation of this rather obscure book that was written in 19, late 1970s, predating Mike Davis's City of Courts. And it's written by Giovanni Berino when he was doing his dissertation in Los Angeles. 
He's an Italian architect, urban planner, writer, and the book is called La Città Capitalista. And it's an incredible, beautiful dissection of Los Angeles. And it talks about anywhere from um, trailer home communities to architecture schools in LA to the society in general, the economics of Los Angeles in a sort of Marxist critical way. And so the book was never... I had the possession of the book since uh, the late 70s. I found it in Syrac Library and walked away with it. And, um, <laughs> you found it in the library. It was just and, and, tucked and, away. Finders keepers. Yeah. Finders keepers. Those days, Syrac had like a, altogether, I think, 50 books in their library. And then later on, the architects started to donate their books and the library started to get bigger. Yeah, I remember we. I went and saw Ray Cappy speak at Syrac and referred to the students of Syrac at that early age when it was first starting, pushing to really have a library, but they didn't really have one because they wanted to leave that to the formal universities. They could leave that oper- that responsibility to someone who was more, you know, uptight and they could just do whatever they wanted. Exactly. And then Gruen Associates uh, donated their library to Cyarc and uh, with one condition that it had to come with the librarian. So the librarian also came with the books. I took one book and I'm doing some things with it over the years, La Cita Capitalista, and, but I also donated a lot of books to Syrac Library in the past. So, you know, I paid back. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, Definitely. A, I, I'm not a, like a bad thief. Well, once um, you get the English translation funded, then you can go back to Syarc and present them with yes, a the shiny book, new copy. Yeah, going back to it, it's written by Giovanni Barino and Tony Carfello and I have been working on this. And we found located the uh, located the writer. He's in Torino, still teaching urban planning architecture, and he's super excited. We found a translator, and we are waiting to be funded from Graham Foundation at the moment. And if we don't get it from Graham, we're gonna get it from somewhere else. There's always a ways to get it. It's not a big budget project, so that's one of the things that I'm working on. Aside with. Uh, Los Angeles Biennale, and we applied for Oslo Triennale, and they kind of uh, were super excited in the very beginning, and we haven't heard back since after having our initial interview with them. So Tony is kind of pissed off, so am I. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to do perhaps a a session on an Oslo Triennale, which is about dislocated people, immigration, Syrian refugees, and all that. We're going to do a version of it here without their permission. It's a perfect Los Angeles Biennale, L.A. Biennale thing to do. And yes, you're right. It's not the same Biennale. It's a kind of a runaway. It's a illegal. It's not funded by anybody. And so we don't, we don't owe anything, any, anything to anybody. So we can basically do anything we want to do with it. I'm sure that you would be also interested joining us this come this summer. And You'll be staked out in the middle of the LA River in a dry season, just the, like the, doing course, donuts and yeah. something like that. Yeah. And, and it's either that or we might be attaching ourselves to Mayor Garcetti's latest project, <laughs> the Public Art Biennale, and let's see what we can do with them. <laughs> 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 Some fruitful collaborations. Yeah. And um, these are the, you know, a couple of things that I'm working on. There's always other stuff. There's tons of things. But these are the things that I can remember. I guess I'm most preoccupied with those at the moment. And you also wrote a piece for us recently. I did. Yeah. That just got published today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the day before this this uh, 
episode is is airing. That's an interesting piece because I remember you asking me to write about it way back in August. And yeah, back when we started the Archonnect Travel Series, which yes. is basically where, where we ask architects in in uh, different prominent cities mm-hmm. around the world to uh, share with us their favorite spots and their favorite parts of the city. And honestly, I did start to write about it. Actually, I started the first few ideas when I was in Turkey staying with my mother in the summertime. And actually, I did work on it all these months. It's a short, really kind of a ridiculously short and kind of uh, uncluttered piece, but it did take me for a while to put it together, uh, carefully mapped out to initiate of the piece. And I want to turn this into a kind of like a road trip, which Quandam in Arkinek properly called it out in his commentary. By the way, I know that he's a little bit kind of a, not everybody's favorite person, but I know Condom over the years and we have been exchanging mails and things like that. There are some really good redeeming sides to him. I just <laughs> want to announce well, it here. He, he's, he's shared those sides with us many times. Yes, yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a few thousand times. <laughs> no, no, I, no I, Okay. <laughs> But I agree with you, Orhan. I agree. I, I, I guess I'm like friend of the friendless, always been in my life. So before we jump right into this, just to give it a little context, the piece is called Industrial LA, and it is a look at a part of LA that very few people, including most Angelinos, are completely unfamiliar with. And it's a, it's a town or city called Vernon, right? It starts, uh, actually, it's based on Alameda Corridor. Alameda Corridor is a railroad that starts from uh, Port of Los Angeles, which is the largest port in the United States, and continues on since then, you know, comes to downtown and passes. And that's the railroad distributes all the goods all over the uh, country. And it's an interesting initiative. It starts from, I mean, I, I started the piece from Vernon, which I'm very familiar with it, that I did a project for uh, Rotterdam Biennale for it. And since then, I've been um, doing extensive sort of visitations and uh, research on the place. And there are a lot of, anyway, the, the piece starts from Vernon and goes all the way to uh, Port of Los Angeles and stops in all these interesting stations, as I call them. And uh, it's sort of a, a road trip, really. That's where. So how would you describe Vernon for those who have never heard of it or let alone seen it? Instead of me describing it, I'll tell you a little anecdote. When I was there, the, um, one of the first times with some students, the, Vernon is a place that is about four square miles. It's uh, two, three miles south of downtown Los Angeles. And it's uh, even the sign of the city says exclusively industrial. And the, all these industries are there because Vernon is able to produce its own energy, electricity, and they sell it very cheaply to the industries have been occupied. It's kind of a company town, family town. And anyway, I, when I was there with the students, there's only 150 live in Vernon. Before it was 100, but the state put a mandate if you don't increase your population 
to, you know, more, uh, we're going to cut the funding for the city. So Vernon decided to add 50 more people. <laughs> How did they do that? Do you know? They built this condominium-like uh, housing <laughs> there in one of the industrial areas. Not one of these, the, the whole city is industrial. So anyway, when I was there with students one day, I saw this person, like there's three houses in one neighborhood. There's two apartments, I mean, two units in one neighborhood, and there's five more houses in the other neighborhood. That's how Vernon is. And so I saw this guy, it was like seeing something very unusual, an actual house and somebody's living there. So I immediately ran up to him. First, he didn't want to talk to me. And I kind of said, here, I'm here with architecture students and we are looking at the city. He said, what do you think about Vernon? How long you been here? And he looked at me and his eyes were bloodshot. And he said this three words that this place is toxic. And it is true. Vernon has 4,000 toxic sites. And it has a class A or, you know, one of the highest ranking fire stations because it's vulnerable to any kind of uh, chemical fires or terrorism attacks or any of that. If something happens to Vernon, Los Angeles would be kind of a decapacitated for a certain amount of time, even if it's short. So that's how my interest started in Vernon and this uh, the anecdote I want to tell you. It's a really interesting place and it's the all the food uh, process there. The Farmer John's has a factory there and uh, outside of it is all this incredible. The pride and joy of Vernon is a big mural showing a pig farm, showing happy pigs and all that, but inside they're slaughtered. Very sad. And after Vernon is, uh, you know, the, the one uh, geographical condition of this place or the places that I've written this piece about is they're all unified by L.A. River, which is, you know, much talked about feature in late uh, urban design and planning conversations, as we all know. So that's. I, I hope I didn't veer too much off from the... Well, what's great about... What I like about the piece is that it's not simply a road trip through different architectural icons as you would traditionally understand them, but there's a bunch of different varieties. You speak of a casino, a Schindler-designed, I believe in Watts, a chapel that's been kind of left yes. to decay. The, <laughs> the As it can only be known as the chowder barge, which chowder just barges. is a, a thing that could not be less appealing to in, in how it's named, but might... Is what, like a floating houseboat bar that uh, kind of clinches the end of the journey of the road trip? I'm like that, actually. I'm a little bit of a, you know, beat generation person, maybe a little younger at the time. But that's how I, how I travel, even if I'm going to the next neighborhood. I kind of uh, look at things that way. It's kind of a little bit of a storytelling way. And all these places over the year made uh, certain ways to my conscience. And it's always like that for me in L.A. You know, don't be fooled with my accent. I've been here for a long time. Sometimes people ask me, where is this? Where is that? Not only I know where they are, I know what they used to be. So um, it's that kind of, uh, I guess, way of looking at places and not necessarily just driving and it's just, here's a you know snapshot here, snapshot there. Although the article looks like a snapshot, it's a little bit in-depth at least in my mind. And, you know, the writing poetry is kind of a really reductive process or anything for me, you know, just consider every word carefully and you put it in there, you know, it has some other layers to it. 
So I try to do that, and I like to keep, keep continuing. It started from my piece on the constellations of Los Angeles, which I did in Postopolis, L.A., which was a big thing a few years ago. Jeff Mano and Brian Finocchi organized. And so I just kind of, uh, in different manners, continue the same kind of an exploration, geographic exploration of the city that you know I came to know or still trying to discover myself. So the Constellations article was so fantastic, Orhan, I loved it. Thank you. But I wanted to ask you if you feel like this area, the Vernon area, is it under threat of disappearing? And the context of that question is, is this neighborhood in more of a threat of disappearing than anywhere else in L.A. has been in the time that you have lived there? Because we know neighborhoods change. We know things live. <laughs> Do you see this neighborhood as um, disappearing? No, actually, it's just the opposite, which is kind of really interesting. It doesn't, Vernon has been carefully be very protective of their industrial existence in the vicinity of Los Angeles. So Vernon is is a city very careful about, you know, even their residential policies are sort of I'm in agreement with them. This came up in Rotterdam when we were uh, discussing Los Angeles with uh, some architects there that, you know, I have emphasized before the necessity of industrial neighborhoods in American cities or any uh, cities anywhere. I'm sort of, I wouldn't say against, but I'm uh, highly critical of urban design ideas that, you know, like the, uh, the, 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 the word that I kind of came up with gin fizz uh, urbanism, for example. Right. I'm, I'm kind of very much critical about this kind of a celebratory urbanism thing, consumerist urbanism going around, vibrant cities, etc. I think the cities has to have this uh, very healthy dosage of industrialness to them, the working communities and the, you know, the kind of real aspects of any kind of a population. Absolutely. And so you see that maintaining in Vernon. You're hoping that it won't gentrify, in other words, or you think that it likely won't. I think Vernon would be the last place to gentrify. First of all, there is a one uh, very protective thing about it is toxic. It's <laughs> <laughs> an exclusively industrial, toxic and, neighborhood of and, 120 people. Yes. And I want to like emphasize that. So if anybody has any plans, so they just like, kind of uh, retreat from it. <laughs> What if this podcast episode backfires and, and it starts to gentrify out of uh, the <laughs> fascination that we've created? Uh, I guess you'll find out someday that we'll they have found to bear that me burden. in a river somewhere. <laughs> Do you know, is it a cheap place to live? Uh, actually, everybody, residential uh, part of Vernon, which is uh, 150 people or so, is most of this, all those places are owned by the city. So they rent these places in ridiculously cheap rents to uh, either uh, the people who used to work for city of Vernon and retired or actively involved in, for example, fire department, police department, and working actually for the city. So those are the only people. So they don't complain about anything. They just, you know, happy to be there. They don't pay too much rent. They don't, there's nothing in Vernon that you can raise a family. But this person I talked to who told me this place is toxic in the four words that he said he raised his two daughters there. One of them is a veterinarian and the other one is a psychologist. 
So they both were raised in Vernon, but you know, people in Vernon, there's no grocery stores, there's no such a thing. So they go nearby communities like Maywood and City of Industry or City of Commerce to buy their groceries. And however, there's an elementary school or in a high school somehow. Mm. Just plenty of room in Vernon. And another interesting story is at one point, uh, I kind of instigated this idea about urban camping in Los Angeles because there's two bike lanes. One come from the valley side. It's a miles long. And the other one comes from the San Gabriel Valley. It's San Fernando Valley and San Gabriel. They, they have two long, miles long bike ways that terminate in Long Beach. So what, what happens in Vernon, the city of Vernon, of course, you know, cut the bike lane right there. And so you have to detour a couple of miles to get back on the bike trail. So I did instigated a project to a student of mine. So we created this, tried to create a, uh, create a culture of urban camping. So you could start your weekend in, in Burbank or Pico Rivera and make your way on your bikes with your family, with your dog to Vernon. And you can camp in one of the industrial sites there and keep going and spend the next day in the beach, in Long Beach somewhere. And then come back to your house on a Sunday. It's all done in a bike. It's, it's like an urban camping kind of an idea. One of my students actually applied for the Krokawa's capsules that they're going to dismantle in Tokyo. And I kind of uh, pushed her to write a letter that she's volunteering to, they can ship it to Vernon and we can reconstruct it there. It's like crazy stuff goes like that. That would be incredible. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you guys were asking me what I'm working on right now. These are like all these little things that I'm working on. These are all like besides that other serious stuff too. So, yeah. Um, I think it's ironic that there's no grocery store yet. Probably 99% of the stuff that we find in our grocery stores comes through Vernon. Exactly. For example, Whole Foods is distributed from Vernon as they have a big, you know, headquarters there and other food containment facilities, the, the, all the steaks that you eat, you know, they, they all come from Vernon. It's a, a meat processing and also the rendering plant. Vernon stinks, you know, they, they pick up all the roadkills and they take them to Vernon and they just boil them there. And then certain times that you go to Vernon and you just don't want to be there or roll down your windows in your car and just want to keep going to Commerce Casino and try your luck in the poker table. Paradise on Earth. Paradise on Earth. You got it. Do you want to go? I do. <laughs> okay. I'll take you there. Four square miles of paradise. Yeah. Ken, did you have a comment? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Um, when I looked at the photographs and I got immediately wistful, uh, sentimental about <laughs> my uh, trips from uh, along the North Jersey course, a North Jersey coast corridor train from my where I lived on the Jersey coast up to Newark. This is like 50 miles of just this kind of uh, scenery. And there's, there was this one building that's always been imprinted in my brain with this, the wonderful texture. And, and just, uh, you know, you get to see the places along these, um, along these railroads that you just don't ever, uh, as a normal citizen, don't get to see when you're driving your car through, uh, through Newark and through, uh, you know, that part, of the northern part of the coast of uh, New Jersey. 
So you get to see a lot of what Orhan's talking about. And you know, one of the things I always wondered about, and I still wonder to this day, is that, you know, God, how many bodies are just like dumped in the swamp in Jersey <laughs> I'm dry, that were taking the train by? Well, so that's, that's where that rendering plant comes in handy. Yeah. <laughs> Funny thing is, I mean, this is not really unique to L.A. or, you know, New Jersey. It's like every American city mostly have this scenery and have these sections. They're just neglected. Not many people talk about them because there's nothing to really uh, celebrate architecturally other than if you are into industrial imagery, which I am, and many other people like Rainer Bonham and others that, you know, emphasize in this industrial landscapes. Supposedly the second season of True Detective is based on the political corruption and the industrial culture, you might say, of Vernon. Very true. Each time I mention Vernon, everybody says, oh, did you watch this episode? Uh, I just say... (laughs) Yeah, but I don't really watch television. But it does, because the river kind of is the uniting vein through your piece and is, as you mentioned, for the bike paths, kind of the uniting transit path that connects these seemingly very disparate aspects of L.A. culture. Do you imagine, especially with the more attention on the river and the Gary project and the master planning, that eventually the culture of L.A. will have to refer to Vernon in some way? Everything will have to kind of be brought together and perhaps not reconciled, but organized around a more holistic idea of all of the different areas that LA does represent? I mean, if it's done in a, the acceptable ways, why not? Uh, there's uh, LA River has a huge potential to be used for all kinds of recreational ways for the immediate communities around it. You know, if you if you look at the map, the residential lots get really smaller around the industrial parts of Los Angeles. And and people do need these recreational areas there as well. But the, the way things are going, there's only one kind of development in L.A., and it's for the uh, for kind of a disproportionate profits. That's what's happening in, uh, in downtown. That's what's happening around the uh, public transportation corridors that newly coming up in different parts of the city. But... I think L.A. River, starting south of uh, downtown Los Angeles, has huge potential. And it's really quite beautiful, actually. Yeah, you have some nice shots in the piece. Yes. Even around like Vernon, there's like beautiful shots of Los Angeles River. And as it gets closer to the Pacific Ocean, it even gets more interesting and picturesque, actually. And there's a lot of landscape, open areas, space around there. I mean, if I was uh, like a a bicycling person, I would definitely use that trail over and over. Maybe with a gas mask. Maybe with a gas, but you know, (laughs) like I used to smoke like a chimney up until 10, 15 years ago, two packs of camels a day. <laughs> and now I so you're you're immune to burn, burn yeah. Yeah. I quit uh, smoking at the Cleveland airport. That's <laughs> 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 true. Yeah. That was the, uh, the inspiration was something about the Cleveland airport or just a nice stamp to put on the experience? No, I, I just want to stop. We were visiting my wife's family in Ohio and uh, I just threw the cigarette and the pile of snow that was there. And I said, I'm not going I to smoke for a couple of weeks and it became a month and year and so on. Really good decision that I made there. I'm proud of myself. As you should be. Yeah. So if you were to play host to a person who had never been to L.A. before, what would be the first thing you would show them in this tour of industrial L.A.? I usually take people to these areas that I talk 
in the article. I took George Brugmans, the director of Rotterdam Biennale. I took Ole Bauman, was the creative director of Shenzhen Biennale, and other the Netherlands Institute of Architecture is great institution. So I took them, and I took many other people. Whoever comes from outside of if Donna and Ken comes here, that I will take them too. It's just kind of uh, like take them to the chowder barge and they can have salted dog. That's uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> well, I heard Donna is going to be making it at, making an appearance in LA in the next couple of months. So oh, maybe, maybe we'll make that a reality. Beautiful. So yes. we're going to have another this crazy arcanic gatherings the one we had in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, if you remember. <laughs> oh yeah, that's before all. my time. <laughs> we can all melt away together in toxic land of Vernon. Yes. Sounds perfect. <laughs> exactly the experience of LA I would want to have. <laughs> you know, the thing to me, and Ken, you mentioned Jersey, and I think about Jersey, and I think about the Midwestern landscapes when I drive up through Gary to get to Chicago. The difference here somehow is that the LA is so beautiful. The sky, the sea, the, the breeze off the ocean, everything about it is so beautiful. And yet under that sparkling sky is this weird industrial toxicity. Yeah. True. It seems somehow more at odds with the uh with the with the sky than in Jersey where everything's sort of gray anyway. Very true. Yeah, it's, I think it's it's interesting you see the palm tree. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. One of the photos. Happy palm tree. <laughs> Toxic waste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're actually developing a super breed of mutant palm trees coming out of those areas that are, I'm just kidding. This doesn't really exist, but I can imagine that that would be a, a helpful uh, accessory. Let's talk about Zaha. Yeah. Let's talk Let's about that. Zaha. Oh. I mean, it's such a jump. She wouldn't, she wouldn't go to Vernon, perhaps. But, <laughs> well, one of the first things that popped up when, uh, when news of her death came up was the post to the news that you made only just a few months ago. Yes. Linking to the archived footage of her lecture at SciArc, which was, I believe, the first time you had ever seen her I have in person. 1985. She was a commanding presence about her, very strong. And she just kind of beamed out a very particular sense of talent. And mm-hmm. you couldn't miss that. And, and, and there's, there was certain kind of, maybe I'm from that part of the world, there was certain kind of Arabness about her. And my mother is half Arabic, and so I kind of uh, have a, a, a little intimate connection to that kind of uh, psyche about a, a person, a, a woman from that part of the world. And she kind of beamed that out very strongly, and I was quite fascinated with it. And um, that's why what inspired me to put on, especially there was all this hyperbolic discussions going about uh, Zaha, Zaha is this, Zaha is that. Everybody was kind of a dumping on her. That kind of made me think about her in such a way, kind of almost like a, from memory. I said, I have to post something that is at least, you know, kind of uh, says what she, what I think she's about. And I was pretty accurate, actually, in many ways. It's very hard to miss Zaha when you see her on person or when you hear her talk, when you shake her hand and when you exchange something. She, she just kind of beams that kind of an energy or she, I mean, she's an incredibly strong architect, woman, whatever. You know, every, the interesting thing about it is now she's passed away Everybody wants to kind of pull Zaha into their cows. You know, there's all this thing about 
you know, you know how Zaha, the woman architect, there's discussions. I'm not taking one position or the other. I care less, really. But I just go to Drake to this person, an Arab, accomplished Arab woman. I kind of uh, am fascinated and I'm very much impressed with her talent and the way that she carried herself when she was alive. And um, she's a truly a fascinating a character, I think. Uh, like last night, I was watching some of the, her appearance in USC a couple of years ago. It's started to get a little showy. You know, she was kind of doing the same kind of anecdotes, which people does in these lectures. That's why I don't really go to lectures anymore. They just, you know, pull a couple of uh, jokes that people want to hear and go on, etc. And she got a little bit showy a couple of years ago. But when I saw her in 1985, that was the, I saw the real essence of her because she didn't have anything built. She just talked about her student projects and a Hong Kong peak competition that she has just won. And it was beautiful to see her and get inspired. And this was put together by Shelly Cappy, Ray Cappy's health. And she also, I just like to, you know, take a side note in here and sort of pay respect to Shelly Cappy. She is responsible for the lectures areas in SciArc, which became internationally very well known as one of the best lecture archives. You have almost everybody in, in those archives. And she's the one that credit must be given to Shelly Cappy. She's the uh, person who created those. So, and she introduced Zaha in her own ways, and it was a fantastic sort of an appearance by her. I think everybody who left that room had a similar sort of uh, impression of Zaha Hadid. And so that, for me, it wasn't really so important to hear that her stadiums look like a vagina or she's this, she's that. (laughs) All that stuff is really bullshit. And um, it's I don't believe in any of it. I mean, accusing the architect that somebody dies in the construction site and all that. I mean, I have my points about Zaha. She did uh, her company. I shouldn't just singularly refer to her. It's as much as Zaha, it's Patrick or many other talented people work in those kind of big offices. But I, I had my position about her cartel project in Istanbul. and But th- that's okay. You don't have to like everything everybody does. But I think uh, my impression of her goes beyond the architecture. And I looked at look at her as a, a certain kind of an idealist person that brings a certain kind of a certain pride into Arabic communities around the world and uh, Middle East. She's been very, very inspirational to many people around that part of the world. I mean, that alone, it's an incredible accomplishment. Orhan, that, that, that sort of, I feel like uh, I really understand everything you're saying right now. It really goes straight to my heart because I know in our long, long history on Arcanec, whenever Zaha has come up and people have said nasty things about her, which they always do, you were always a defender and you were always someone who could help me to see that even though I could see her as this incredible person and architect and woman who, as a woman, has inspired me also, that you could also see this, like you said, Arabness about her that you connected with on a very, on a different level. And it helped me to see her through those eyes as well, I guess. You know, I feel like it has constantly been for you and for others, this battle against people that just want to say, terrible things about her. 
which I would put to jealousy, basically, that they, they don't, she doesn't look like them, she doesn't act like them, and yet she achieves this amazing status and people don't like it and they, they feel this need to cut her down. And you always helped me to see her much, I think, more clearly. And, and, and I respect her completely as a woman. She has been a huge inspiration sure. to me. And to see that you could also have that kind of connection to her on a personal level. Sure. I think she's also a very beautiful looking woman and beautiful person I think so too. as well. <laughs> I think I mean, so too. I think you and I share this as well. And uh, I don't know. I mean, she's Gorgeous. She's, She's gorgeous. Beautiful. I, I agree with you. And, and I would also go back to you around the same time. So I think it was 18, 1986 or 87. My very, very good friend and former business partner, Matt Harris, who I went to architecture school with in Arizona, he took a semester and went to Japan. And Zaha spoke in that lecture, in their lecture series in um, Kyoto. And we had seen the peak projects, but he was the only person I knew, you know, it's like a second, uh, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. He saw her and through him being, having a personal connection with her through this very small lecture series, I felt then personally connected to her. And he said the same thing, that she had a presence that you knew was amazing and that she was going to do something, you know, the, the peak drawings were so important, but just being in her presence in the same room, seeing how she moved, how she dressed, how she carried herself, how she presented her ideas, that, that he just knew she was something more than what we were getting in our lecture series at the University of Arizona, you know, yeah. <laughs> like she had a huge impact on him and he has always had a huge impact on me. And so that sort of connection between uh, across her fame, I've always felt like she was very early on a big, a big inspiration for me. Amelia, what, did you have something similar? Well, I wanted to, first of all, express my appreciation that you guys are just referring to specific instances where you either actually saw her and were in the same space with her, because I feel in a way so completely removed from, from her work. I've never been to one of her pieces. I've never been in one of her projects. I've never been in the same room as her. I have very little personal or real world experience with this architect who had such a huge impact on the profession and, and on the built world. And so I have what I feel is like a inherently different perspective, but also one that is not necessarily any, any less reverential, but just based on how she was kind of this inadvertent object of so much unfair in a way scrutiny, but that did also always reflect right, on right. how incredibly significant she was. It was kind of like the only reason that she was dealt all that shit is because she was so significant. And that's kind of a right. testament to that. And that in the tragic fact that she died relatively young, it kind of cuts into sharp relief how she was treated by the public and by the architecture media in a way that has been kind of now brought up as being particularly unfair towards her and kind of putting in her, her in all these identity politics discussions that she was very uninterested in. I think in all of the instances where in the countless interviews or the countless pieces where she's asked to comment on her womanhood or her Arabness or whatever, she's very blunt and very much just straightforward as either, yes, that matters to me and it's important, but I don't think it's the most important thing and we should just move on, basically something to that effect, or that she just feels like it's not relevant. And she's very like, no bullshit in that way. And I think that despite the fact that we will need people always to be the advocates and to speak on behalf of those communities, that to have someone who is part of it inherently just because of who they are, but doesn't feel the need to be that sole representation or that sole person whose job it is to to lead those parties, I think that that was also very refreshing to me, just seeing her from the outside. Ken? You know, I think one of the things that I I've been just listening to you, all of you talk about her. I mean, my only experience was uh, sitting outside of a lecture that I wasn't able to get into at Columbia because it was so packed. And it's one of the few times that I've that I've seen a or I've been to a lecture at Columbia where you just weren't able to get a seat. 
but I, I, you know, I think when I think about her, and I think what frustrated people the most is that what we tend, what men tend to look for, and I think what the profession and what other people tend to look for is uh, someone who is apologetic. And right. you never got the sense from her that she was going to apologize for anything. She, you know, and I think by having such a strong voice that frustrated people, because I think once you get that, that opportunity to pull that person down and bring them to your discussion and have, and let, force them to have a discussion at your level, it makes them seem a little bit smaller. And then, and then they've got the hook in you. And she never seemed willing to meet you at your level. She was always going to elevate the discussion and make sure that it stayed where, where it needed to be, which was, uh, one positive thing that uh, Eisenman did say was uh, about her being a defender of architecture. Yeah. So that was um, important. And, and, you know, just to look at her drawings, that was my first connection with her um, was through the, the peak competition and then through the Vitra fire station. You know, to see her influence across, um, even when I look, I can't help but look at the Ethiopian uh, artist, uh, Julie May- Mertu, I think that's how you pronounce her name, whose work looks... You know, her work is stunningly familiar when you look at it to, uh, to connect with Zaha's um, paintings. So it's terribly sad that she's gone. And I think what I'm most, what I think about now is what is the legacy and what is the firm, how does the firm navigate this obviously catastrophic loss going forward? What does it become? Um, what is the, what happens to the people there? What is the voice? How does that, how does that carry through to the future projects that are either in the office now or be under construction currently? And then what happens to her legacy? We've had this discussion with Billy and Todd and, and this, you know, you could think about those things when you're kind of planning your exit from the profession. But when something, something like this happens where you're not thinking about your own mortality and you you wonder, I wonder, who's going to be taking up her legacy and, and making sure that that's carried I, forward. I think that part is going to be pretty much going to be handled with the PR engine of the architectural press and also marketing people, I think. It's the same question comes up, you know, why there's very little talked about her funeral. It's kind of, um, of course, you know, we were kind of touching base with this in the very beginning of this conversation is the, the marketing people don't want her dead in a way because there are a lot of open projects there are new projects still on the boards there are ones under constructions there's ones that just recently completed so there's a you know a lot of money involved in this i think um that part of it is like uh i'm least interested one thing was i agree with i always thought uh, zaha's work is kind of an architectural arabic calligraphy work islamic calligraphy and uh, a long time ago, somebody asked me about her work I mentioned as being arabesque. And we should talk more about her work rather than, you know, what she said or how she behaved here, what she did there. I think there has to be a little bit more conversation has to come forward about actual work, what she was doing and uh, and what all those projects mean to you know, for example, everybody wants to kind of identify and use Zaha Hadid after the fact that, you know, now she is the, um, the person to carry on the uh, parametricism flag and, or uh, any other architectural sort of uh, style related or the school related issues. 
But I, I think if we leave all this stuff aside and really talk about her work, there's still a lot to be learned from her talent. Well, I think, you know, as, as she lived, you know, we, we spoke about her often. I don't think that there are any other architects that were mentioned as, as often as she was on Archonnect since we started almost 20 years ago. I think that's, you know, it's because uh, what she did and who she was was really important to this, to our, to our field. And, you know, I think since her death, a lot of comments that came up after David Bowie's death, I find have been very appropriate to use in, in that, you know, we were as sad as it is, you know, we we're really lucky to have her influence in our industry mm -hmm. as an architecture role model and as as a tremendous, you know, talent that had an unbelievably laser-like, you know, creative vision from the beginning. I mean, the the seamless transition from her from her work as a student into her work as a as a architect building projects all over the world was incredible. I, I, I think it's unprecedented. I've never seen that kind of talent transition between media so so smoothly. Anyways, so, so yeah, architecture is a lot less interesting without her. Um, and, and we're definitely going to miss her a lot on, on Archonnect. One, uh, little story that I can share is when I, I met her last year at her gallery in London and, um, Patrick uh, Schumacher was showing me around the gallery and the office. And she, she was, uh, sitting there at, at her incredibly expensive glass table. And she was working. She was really busy working. She wasn't, she wasn't just, you know, watching everybody doing her work. She had one office and that was in London. And that's because she was involved in every project. And she had a team of people presenting her with work. And she was, you know, you could see that she was very, very dedicated to what she did. But I, it was, it was a really humbling experience when Patrick came and introduced her to me. And, you know, at first, she just kind of kept her head down and she kept working when, when he said, hi, uh, this is Paul Petrunia. And she was like, okay, okay, hi. I think he's like, he's, uh, he, he's the founder of Archonnect. And then she looked up and she took my hand and said, Oh, it's, it's nice to meet you. And I was, uh, I was, I was really, uh, both humbled at, at her lack of interest in me and, uh, very excited when, when she, uh, perked up when she heard Archonnect. So that was, that was a very exciting moment. And you said she smiled. She did. She smiled. She did. She's, when he said Archonnect, as, she had a big, beautiful smile. And as, as somebody pointed out on Twitter recently, I forget who it was, it's amazing how many photos of her smiling and happy have popped up since her death. Yeah. Nobody ever saw these before she before she died because, you know, people like to look at the, at the, uh, the harsher side of her, which was basically just a strong architect pushing forward in a field that's not too kind to other architects. Well, on that note, let's call it an episode. Thank you so much to Orhan for joining us. I hope that this is the first of many episodes that you'll be joining us on. Thank you for inviting me and uh, really enjoyed. And I would have liked to hear more. I, I hope I didn't take most of the conversation or microphone time here. No. <laughs> no. The Zaha conversation will continue. It will. Yes, we should. I, I think in the long run, more about the about the work will come out and less about uh, the dame side of her. And I'm looking kind of forward to it. Somebody truly dissect the work. The work is incredibly complex. The more you look at it, more uh, it unfolds. Yeah. Definitely uh, her legacy lives on, so she will be discussed ongoing. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening to another episode. You can reach us on Twitter at uh, our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. And uh, you can send us an email to connect at ArcConnect if you have any suggestions or questions or feedback. 
You can also post those uh, that feedback to iTunes in the form of a review and a rating. We would love to get your thoughts. I know there's uh, thousands of you out there listening to us, and there's only a few comments. So we're just uh, we're waiting for everybody to let us know what you what you like and what you don't like. And uh, stay tuned for another episode of One to One, Our Connect Sessions One to One. If you haven't subscribed to that, please do. The next episode will be airing on Monday, which is three days from this air date. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Good talking to you all. Bye-bye. Bye.